We want to read our scripture lessons today. We're looking at Isaiah for our Old Testament text, Isaiah chapter 10. We're going to read verses 5 through 7, and then skip it down and read 12 through 15. This is a text much like, uh, well, it helps us have insight into how God uses unrighteous nations and people to accomplish His goodwill. Even though they don't intend to do that, that's what happens. So listen here to God's Word. God is speaking. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that's where the judgment is going to fall, He will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this. For I have understanding, and I have removed the boundaries of the peoples, and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached to the riches of the people like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth. And there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. God responds, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding those who lift it, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Amen. Our, old, our New Testament text is from Romans chapter 2. We'll read verses 17 through 24. This, this text will help us have some insight into how Paul, and through him, as he speaks here and writes this, how God viewed the Jews at that time when he wrote this, somewhere in the late 50s, early 60s. Again, listen here to God's Word. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the Lord through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Amen. Then our primary text today is Revelation chapter 17. You know, we're making our way pretty well through the book of Revelation. Uh, we'll have, what, five chapters after this, I think? We have... Uh, going to divide them into nine different sections so that 
Uh, we'll come to do five of them in May and four more in June, and at the end of June we'll be done with Revelation. So uh, that's, that's what we're projecting to do. We'll see if that actually works out. Today is chapter 17, though, and we'll explain as we preach what's going on here. Listen here to God's Word. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, that is the bowls of wrath we talked about last week, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. That's the beast. That's not the woman. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with a beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Amen. We'll take just a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's word which we've read. Well, gracious God, we are here before you to worship, and part of our act of worship is to receive your word, to let it penetrate our 
minds, our hearts, how we comprehend and understand the world in which we live and how we are to live in it ourselves, how we're to think about it, how we're to understand it. So we ask you, Lord God, to come by your word and by your spirit and do that good work in each of us, that, Lord, we may grow in the knowledge of you and of your truth. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the Lord of all. Amen. Well, good news, right? You're not the only one who's been confused as you read through Revelation. John, who wrote it down, was confused. The angel comes and says, uh, let me show you what this all means. Let me give you some help, some explanations here. And he, he does that in this uh, chapter that we read today. That's finally some explanations. That's our sermon title. Uh, remember, this is a prophecy of things to come. Now, the things to come, that means it's not happened yet when John receives the vision. Now, when they're going to happen is another issue, but, but these are things that, that he doesn't know. He's not writing history. He's, he's or he's showing what God showed him is coming up, what's going to happen along the way. And what he says, as he gives John this other perspective, this angel does, is that it's the pouring out of God's wrath on the land. Now, why and how did it come about that God's wrath needed to be poured out? And in this chapter, we meet a new figure whom we've not met before in the first 16 chapters of Revelation. We meet the great harlot. Now, it's significant, by the way, that he doesn't say the great adulteress, but the harlot. There's a whole different category between those two, so just understand that. And he sees again, we meet again, an, an old figure, the beast. So let's see what this new perspective provides for us in our understanding of the book of Revelation. First, though, uh, we need to do some hermeneutical review. Um, again, like I said, I've been hammered about the word hermeneutics. Some things we have to have to, to understand this. So uh, there, I would say that there uh, are two very important hermeneutical decisions. Is that right? Uh, yep. So we want to talk about the two most important hermeneutical decisions that you will make and I will make if we're going to understand or try to understand Revelation. Here's the first one. It says, uh, it's to the seven churches. I think we have, well, we got them all up here, so we'll just do it that way. The first one is this. It says, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. So what John writes down, he's supposed to send to seven churches, and it enumerates them. You know, uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Laodicea, Philadelphia, etc. And so it's very specific churches at that point in time. It says, I want them to hear this. So we need to know that it has to have meaning for those churches there and then. Otherwise, why write it? Why spend all that time uh, writing about the churches? And of course, the churches themselves are not little, uh, what do we want to say, cookie stamped out. They're all the same. No, they all have very different things. He knows who they are. We saw that. But then uh, we have the, the issue with regard to the time. Twice in the first chapter, it says, these are things which must soon take place. That is, they're, they're not way off yonder. They must soon take place. Later on, it says in verse 3, heed the things written in, the, in it in this, 
for the time is near. Now those are important instructions for us. And that's repeated again at the end in Revelation 22, where it says, for the time is near. So that's the first thing you have to decide. And I've suggested to you, I said, well, my understanding is that John wrote this sometime in 65, 66, somewhere in through there, AD, 65, 66. Uh, now the second big issue is uh, this. It's the meaning of the word gay. Uh, you know that we, we've had this slide up before. Uh, you can see it, well, not just this slide, but parts of this slide. Uh, it's used 68 times in Revelation. So how you interpret and understand the word gay is going to mean a whole lot for your understanding of the book of Revelation. Now it can mean whole earth, entire mankind. It can mean the land of a particular nation. Or it could mean land as compared to water. Or land as compared with heaven. In much of Revelation, here's the new part I've added here, so we know, I've spoke about this before, but I want to make it clear. In much of Revelation, the texts that we read there, it means the land. The land of Israel, the land, that land. Now, I taught this before, and we said there's, there's, this is not something that we've made up. Uh, in Acts chapter 7, we find when uh, Stephen is making his defense and telling about what happened with Abraham, uh, here's what he said. Or how the quote was, and said to him, God said to him, leave your country, the word's gay, and your relatives, and come into the land, gay, that I will show you. So you see a very specific instance there of how that word is used in the New Testament text to mean a country where he's from and a country where he's going. Now, in Hebrews 11, the famous verse from verse 9, it says, by faith, he, that is Abraham, lived as an alien in the land of promise. Same word there is the word gay. So uh, in none of those instances does it, in neither of those instances, does it mean the whole earth. It refers to a very particular part. So we're not doing anything unusual when we say that. Uh, now, with those two things in the, understood, this great harlot, who is she? We meet her here. Who is she and what is she doing? Well, here are the attributes that we find as we read. This would be a, an exercise that Pastor Michael would have the young people do. Write down 12 observations about this. Well, here's the first one. She sits on many waters. Huh. What in the world does that mean? Don't know. Don't have a clue. Just sits on many waters. What's the next one? It says, uh, the kings of the earth, now read the land, the kings of the land, have committed immorality with her. So they've done bad things, the kings of the land. Uh, and that means the rulers, the princes, the, the governing authorities. Well, apparently they've, they've done things with this harlot that ought not to have been done. The next thing we read is that she causes those on earth, that is, read land, the holes on the land, to get drunk on her immorality. That's what she does. She gets people drunk, get drunk on her immorality, the, the things that... They engage with her. They find it intoxicating. And then there's another thing that it says, and this is a little confusing because it says, we knew that she was sitting on many waters, but now it says she sits on a scarlet beast, 
which has seven heads and ten horns. Now wait, which is it? Where does she sit? You know, so you, you, you can see that, that. Well, we'll see what that means in a little bit. Uh, how is she dressed? It tells how she's dressed. She's dressed richly and provocatively. She's dressed in a very fine fashion. You would see that and say, oh my goodness. And she says she's holding up a golden cup. The golden cup looks good. It's a gold cup. But if you look inside, peer inside that cup, it's full of abominations. That is, things that are detestable to God. Things that are wrong entirely. It's filled with, with that. And that's what they're getting drunk off of, by the way. They're drinking from that cup that, where she has there, and they're getting drunk on those immoralities. Now here is the one that is a quencher. She has a name on her forehead. And uh, it says, it's a mystery, but it, is, it says, this is Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great? Who's that? She's the mother of harlots and the mother of abominations in the earth or in the land, I would suggest again. Although the earth will be appropriate when you apply this beyond the particular context in which it's written. So this is, you know, we've all talked about, what was it when, when uh, we dropped uh, the bomb over in Osama bin Laden after 9-11? The mother of all bombs, right? It's whoo, it's a big one. Well, here is the, the mother, that's where a phrase comes from, the mother of all harlots and of all abominations. She's bad. And one last attribution. And this is the key to where she is. She's dr herself drunk, but she's drunk on the blood of the saints and the witnesses of Jesus. She's a persecuting harlot. Persecuting specifically the saints of God, the witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, she seems attractive. People enjoy her. They take delight in her. She has all the signs of success, of fashion, of pleasure. But those things are not true. Do you remember this picture? There's a picture we have here. Remember that picture? What do you see there? You know, we, we remember this from when grade school. They showed it to us. Say, look at that picture a while. And, and first you see, do you see the beautiful girl? Her nose is off to the side to the left there. She has a, a her, her, she in a profile for her there. But then you look at, oh no, it's an ugly old hag. And you see her nose is on the left. Do you see that? And so what, what, what happens here is that we need to remember that things aren't always what they seem, right? And so while this harlot has the appearance of all these things I've just listed, success, fashion, pleasure, gold cup and all that, that's not the reality. She's actually wretched, wicked, the mother of all harlotry and all abominations. Well, you wouldn't think that just to look at her outwardly. Uh, well, who is she anyway? Who is, who is meant by this? Who is, who is John supposed to understand? Is this the city of Babylon of old? Well, no. Babylon's over in, well, we would call it Iran now, but uh, wasn't there. That's not where, where he's talking about. Many commentators often say, well, Babylon would be Rome. 
Uh, that's what they're talking about here. It, she's the one who's doing this because it says that she's the, uh, she reigns over the kings of the earth. Uh, I don't think that's accurate. They're distinguished and uh, recognized scholars who say that the great harlot is, is Rome. Uh, don't think so. For instance, that the way the, the chapter ends is that Rome actually becomes the force that destroys Babylon, that destroys it. We'll see that in just a second, a little bit here. Uh, I think, here's the third option, I think Babylon is Jerusalem, the land of Israel. It's the land. Our Romans 2 passage that we read today, you know, uh, Paul, and again, when we say Paul, we need to understand the Holy Spirit's inspired him. <clears throat> He's writing down, listing all these things of the Jews. But then he says this, you who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Already 10 years before AD 70, Paul is suggesting that, you know, this Jewish nation, its leadership is not what people would think. It may say all the right things, but it's much different. One thinks of Jesus when he says, you know, for those who sit in Moses' seat, do as they say, but don't do as they do. Listen to what they teach, but don't, don't follow their example. And uh, I think the same thing's true here. Now, I want to do a few slides here with, from another, another uh, place, another place. Uh, piece of scriptures from Ezekiel. You know, Ezekiel was much like John in that he received visions from God about God's impending judgment upon Jerusalem. Now, Ezekiel was in Babylon when that happened. He was there by the river Kabar. Remember all this? And uh, he gives him a series of visions and he prophesies. He starts prophesying in the year uh, 590, I think it is, on his 30th birthday. It's all marked very well in terms of, of Ezekiel. And, you know, Jerusalem doesn't fall till 587. So he has three years in advance to, do th to say this. And God shows him a number of things. But what I found interesting, there's all, my wife and I have been reading through Ezekiel in our morning devotions. Uh, and all kinds of interesting things there. But I want to point to four verses from chapter 22 of Ezekiel that shows the problem. Here's the first verse. It's verse 26. God is speaking. He says, her priests, that is the priests in Israel, have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the profane, and they have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. So her priests, who have an obligation to teach the things of God, to help people to discern what's right and what's wrong, to, to share what, what God would have us do, what God would not have us do, they've not done that. They've done violence to God's law, is what God says. So that's one part of it. Second verse, after that is verse 27, says, her princes within her, they're going to get to the princes in just a second. Go ahead. Go ahead. Her princes within her are like wolves tearing their prey by shedding blood and destroying lives in order to get dishonest gain. Now, that's the political class. Those are kings, rulers, mayors, governors, things like that. And it says they're like wolves. 
Now, we have a Governor Wolf, but he's not a wolf like that. We, we'd say, we, if, we were to, if we were going to do Governor Wolf in, in, a, in, a, in a piece like this, in a uh, literature like this, is we might say, uh, Governor uh, Moon Howler. Because that's, you know, that's what wolves howl at the moon, right? Something like that. Uh, but we wouldn't say, wouldn't say his name. So, uh, her princes... Allegedly, they have it here. Her princes are like wolves tearing the prey by shedding blood and destroying lives in order to get dishonest gain. So they're out to get things for themselves. That's the political class. And then the, the verse immediately after that, God says, Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. That's a, you know, so you have priests, you have princes. Now you have prophets. They've all done these bad things. Uh, they've not done what they're supposed to do. So the prophets say, thus says the Lord, or here's what you should do. And God's not said that at all. Then finally, the verse says, the people of the land. By the way, there's that word, the land. The people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery and have wronged the poor and needy and have oppressed a sojourner without justice. So you find four classes which marks the, all of society, the priests, the princes, the prophets, and the people all are corrupt, God tells Ezekiel. And so they're going to be judged. And you bring them up and they're going to be judged and taken away into captivity. And they are in a matter of just three or four years after he says this. Now, what about verse 15 of chapter 17? It says, and he said to me, the waters where you saw, the, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. We were going to project that onto the screen there, but <clears throat> we haven't <clears throat> figured that one out yet. But, it, but you heard what we can look at your Bible. We've read it. What about that? What does that mean? Multitudes of peoples, nations, tongues, crowds would come to Jerusalem from all over the world for the festivals, particularly Passover. Jerusalem would swell to have a million to three million people there during the festivals. Just big. This even happened during uh, times of war, like it's going on here. And what's going to happen is that people will come for the Passover in the year A.D. 70. And just while they're there, the Romans will come and lay siege to the city. And they're going to be trapped in there. Josephus writes about this. They're all trapped in there. And there are people from all over the place. Just what it says in that text. Uh, from every land, every tongue, all kinds of places like that. They're Jews back to worship in Jerusalem. Therefore, my suggestion to you is this, the great harlot is, in fact, Jerusalem, the land, the people of God, the people who are called to be the people of God. What about the beast? Well, first, we know that we were introduced to the beast uh, again uh, here and in verse 8, and the thing to note is that the beast goes to destruction. So know that right at the beginning, the beast, despite all the things he does, 
God says he's going to go to destruction. Will not survive. Will go to destruction. But we've met this beast before in chapter 13. And we use these, these verses here to help us understand who the beast was in chapter 13. Nero is the Caesar who's reigning at this time. Uh, do we have, can we put up the list of Caesars? There we are. Remember these? We did this once before. Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and now Nero, who reigns from 54 to 68. Remember, he commits suicide on June the 9th, I think it is, in the year 68. <clears throat> so if this is written in 64, 65, Nero's the one who is and who's going to go away. Uh, and, and then you have the, the people who succeed him. Uh, what's about that eighth one? Let, let's put, a, put, put up the eighth one here. Who is that? Here's what it says about the eighth one. Uh, the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. And people try to figure out who that eighth one is all along the way. And I don't have any solution to that in any finality, nor does anyone else that I'm aware of for sure what that all means. I have some speculations. So I'm going to share some speculation with you, all right? So you don't have to take this for anything other than my, you know, this is Niederhaus' speculation. But it's, it's something. I think this talks about people you know, who are looking for salvation from the state. You know, Nero committed suicide, but he was a hero to the people. They loved him. He gave him bread. He gave him games. He gave him circuses. Did all kinds of things. People loved Nero. Now, the ruling class didn't because he was bankrupting the state. He had more in debt than what we are. <laughs> and they could, could pay it off, you know. But the people loved him. After he committed suicide, there were for generations rumors that Nero was resurrected, was coming back again. And so my speculation here is that these rumors and expectations of Nero's resurrection, that is that somehow the state's going to save us and get us out of this mess we're in, is this eighth king. Now we all need to know the very thing I said at the very beginning. The state is doomed. Don't look to the state for your final salvation, for all your help. Now we've been engaged in a, I'm getting into the second part, but I'll come back, don't worry. We're getting engaged, we're being engaged as a culture, Western civilization, of looking to the state and not to God. For our provisions, for all kinds of things. We should look to the state to protect us and keep us, give us laws and stuff to operate within us, but we should look to the state as our final arbiter on all things right and wrong, things like that. That that's, belongs to God. So we all need to know that the state is doomed. Now, there's another verse <clears throat> that says we have to deal with, with the beast, and that's the ten horns. Do they have, you got the ten horns up here somewhere? There we are. That's verses 12 and 13. It says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. They have one purpose. That is, they're all united together in one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These are people, kings, princes, polit political parts that are not yet aligned with Rome. 
when this is written, when a, when a vision is given. But they will be for just a bit, for an hour, and these refer to Syrians and others who, when Titus comes and, and finally makes the siege on Rome, he's going to have all kinds of foreigners with him who, who would ordinarily not have been uh, part of Romans at all, part with the Romans. They were enemies of Romans. The Parthians, Syrians, etc. And so these are folks who are going to unite their power with Rome, and they're going to do a number on the harlot, Jerusalem. All right, you can take that down. So the thing we have to see here is that who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords? The Lamb. Isn't that amazing? The King of kings and the Lord of lords is the Lamb. The Lamb who was crucified. The Lamb who was raised. He's the one. That's all the teaching about Revelation. If you, you want to summarize the whole teaching of Revelation, it's this. The Lamb is worthy. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's worthy. He wins. That's the teaching of Revelation. That's what the vision is about. To do that, to encourage you to stay faithful to the Lamb. Now his people, it shows here who his people are. They're the called. That is, God has worked in their hearts individually. They've, they've heard the call of God. They're chosen, not by accident, not just sort of a generic call. The call is in you, you, you. He calls us by name, calls us to be his own. Think of Isaiah 42. By God's grace, not by accident. And they're faithful. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm always thankful that God has promised uh, He'll keep me in His care. I've been ruminating over Psalm 121 this week. He will not suffer your foot to be moved, is one of the things there. Now, it may have said, but He's going to bring you right back. One of the marks of the people of God is the perseverance, the faithfulness of His people, of the saints. He keeps us there. Think of all the things that have happened in your life that have caused you to be disillusioned or upset or who knows what, and yet God's been faithful to work a work in your heart to keep your foot where it should be. That is, walking and following after Him. Now, the convergence of purpose of the beasts and of the kings is from God. We saw that in verse 17. It says, For God has put it in their hearts to execute His purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. That's exactly like what we saw in Isaiah chapter 10 when we read that earlier today. The Assyrians had no desire in their heart to really do the will of God. They were just out to rape and pillage and conquer other lands. Well, the Romans and the Syrians and the Parthians and all the rest who come and conquer Jerusalem, they're not looking to do, do anything for the, the, in the will of God. They would dispute even who God is. But God uses them, and God is the one who's put it in their heart to do it. That's what it says here in our text. God put it in their hearts to do these things. And so God stands sovereign over all this. It's their will, but it's His purpose. Now, we're going to finish on time today. That's hard to believe, Harry. Maybe. We'll see. Some applications for us. First and foremost is this. The harlot still abounds. Though the land in Jerusalem were destroyed, the harlot in terms of what it, it means for us, those things were written for our instruction that we should learn from them. The harlot still abounds. Think of, uh, again, I chose that passage from Ezekiel 
because it showed the, the prophets, the princes, the priests, and the people. Think of the church, the priests. The church will do what the priests have done, that is, they will legitimize what God rejects. And we have churches and denominations that do this, that regardless of what God says about this in terms of moral behavior, in terms of worship, say, it doesn't matter, we're in a new age, a new era, so we're going to do this anyway, we've moved on. So the heart is still out there seeking to seduce us, to bring us alongside, so that we will accept what God rejects. And it's a powerful, powerful push. And feel that. We have, you may have heard about this about, oh, maybe it's two or three months ago, uh, where a seminary had a class in worship where it taught people, their students, and these are going to be pastors, to go out and confess your sins to plants because of all the horrible things we've done to the earth. Confess your sin to the plants and get forgiveness from them. May I say to you, that's, that's rank idolatry. And the church is doing it. These are the priests, just like in the land of Ezekiel's time. Or you've heard this. I've heard distinguished church leaders say that the coronavirus is nature's wrath on us for what we've done to nature. You've heard that. Folks, that's absolutely false. Don't believe that. Nature doesn't have a wrath. That's not possible. If you do that, you're, you're attributing to nature what belongs to God. God has wrath, and God is in charge of the coronavirus as well. Lord knows we want more than this that we deserve. What's happening there? Uh, and the unfortunate thing is that these things I've just detailed, we find even in evangelical churches and denominations making their little inroads there. Just what we've said. How about the state? Those who are princes. The state is eager to cast off God and exalt itself. It's always been a problem. The state wants to arrogate to itself all the power, all the authority. Leave God out of the picture. We'll make the rules. Now, way back in the early part of when we were teaching here through Revelation, I gave you the five points of the covenant model. The first point is, is this question. Who is in charge? That's always the basic question you have to ask. Who is in charge? God. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Next, to whom do I report? He delegates authority to others. We need to do that. But the state is prone to saying, I'm in charge all the way around, and to neglect God and push him off to the side. We see that happening around us, all around. Did you know that the, the European Common Union, uh, what's that called, the European, what's called the Common Union? The European Union, anyway, when they wrote their constitution, they made zero, they refused to make any zero mention of Christianity. Even though without Christianity, Europe would not be. We see a push in our own land to let's, let's leave God out of this. Or let's have a God who's an amorphous God, who's the God of all, all different religions. Folks, God is the God of one religion. He doesn't have multiple religions. He has one religion. All the rest are false religions, just so you're aware. You need to know that. 
And so the, the state conspires not to do God's will. Think of the last century of Supreme Court rulings and of legislation that's come down in our land. They all have, con not all of them, but I mean, the, the, the point of all of them is that they have conspired not to do God's will, but to say, will supplant that and make this to be the will and rule in our land. Yet that's not what God raised the state up for. That's what they're supposed to do. How about the prophets? Who are the prophets of our day and age? I would say it's literature, media, and entertainment. They tell us what's going to be, how we should live. And they do all the things we've just mentioned above. Literature, media, and entertainment all push us into lasciviousness, lawlessness, godlessness, mockery of God, uh, animosity toward God, uh, or a trivializing of God where, you know, he's just a little grandfatherly thing or something we lead around. It's all meant to do that. And in many ways, the prophets, as they're meant to do, they're supposed to prophesy and lead, they've led us astray. We've been caught up in that. And they've led us far, far, far astray. How about the people of the land? Well, we citizens, we're compromised by all of the above. We've listened to them. False prophets, false priests, false princes. And we've turned away from God. And yet the mark of the Lamb's people is that they're chosen, called, and faithful. Back to chapter 12, verse 11. They overcame because they did, what? Because the blood of the Lamb, because they did not love their lives even to the death. The word of their testimony, because they did not love their life even to the death. We need to be people like that in our day and age. Know that we're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's who does it. We're going to share our testimony, and we won't love our life even if it requires us to die. We've listened to the prophet's siren song and followed along blindly. We must push away. Don't give mere lip service to God. Give your heart to God. Follow him with all your heart. Now, I have one last slide I'd like to show you. It's a picture here. Uh, how do you like that? What do you see there? Do you see that golden cup? You see the golden cup? You can't help but see the golden cup, right? But, but, if you see a golden cup there, it's full of abominations. Just like the cup in the harlot's hand. It's full of abominations. What we need to see there are the profiles. So you see that the stem of the vase is the profile of two, looking like this. That's, if you would, that's us speaking to one another with biblically informed, balanced truth. We need to bear up one another. We need to correct one another. We need to encourage one another, 
hold up one another as long as today is called today. Hebrews 10, right? Encourage one another. So what do you see? There. I remember when I first saw that in, I don't know, somewhere in grade school, I guess. I could not see those profiles at all. Maybe you're like that. All I saw was that, that vase, that urn. My goodness. Well, I need to get my eyes opened. So, Revelation chapter, you can take that down now. Revelation chapter 17, finally some understanding. And so, we understand what's going on. Uh, I think we, hopefully we understand what God calls us to. We say, Lord, uh, we want to follow you. Uh, we know that you're the King of kings and you're the Lord of lords. Let us follow you. Amen.